Thank you, Amy and praise team. That may be a good title for another series, 167 or 168. And that uh, uh, we might look at that next. But we won't do that now. We'll preach the one we're in. And uh, uh, we're, we're still in the middle of Into the Flannel Graph. And we're, we're actually in week seven of uh, the 12-week series. This is about double uh, the, the length of a typical series. Uh, that I'll preach. Usually I never go beyond six to seven weeks, and this is a 12-week series, so it's a long one, and it's a little bit longer, and um, we, we, we've talked about creation and catastrophe and covenant and detours and deliverance, and last week we talked about commandment and community and began talking about just the, the people of Israel after they've been freed from slavery, and uh, we, we, we've been doing this with the understanding that who we are determines what we do, that as the people of Israel understood who they were in God's kingdom, their identity shaped their actions. And so the story of God, as we read through it, it helps us find our identity as the people of God. That, that, that as you work through this story, as you listen through this story, as, as you read through this story, it, it helps you see who you are intended to be. Uh, that, that God has a plan for his people. He has a plan for you and me. And as we look at this story and we see how it's uh, been unveiled or how it's, it's, it's came through through the people of Israel and we'll see through the New Testament, uh, this is not just some ancient story. This is our story. And so we embrace these stories. We embrace what God has done because most of us have went through periods of our life where we have had detours. Uh, where, where we have had defined community, where, where God has spoken particularly to us. And, and so as we work through this story, it helps us see our identity. And, and last week we talked about commandment and community. And, and we, I ended with this phrase, are, are we chasing blessing or his presence? When we left the people of Israel, God had said, okay, I'm going to give you the land. I'm going to give you the leader. Uh, I'm going to send you. You'll get the land. I promised you'll get the blessing, but I will not go with you. And the people of Israel said, that's not good enough. If you're not going with us, God, we're not going. And so, so, so they mourned until God relented and said he would go with them. And what I'm concerned about in our culture is oftentimes if we have the blessing if everything seems to be going okay, if our houses are nice enough, our cars are nice enough, if we make enough money, if our church is, is going peacefully enough, we're not overly concerned about whether we're experiencing the presence of God. And so I left you with that question, and, and I ask you if you would join me in praying for a greater awareness of God's presence through Labor Day. 40 days from last Sunday. And, and several of you have joined uh, and said that, that you'll, you'll join me in praying for this. And some of you I know in your heart decided to do that. I'd love to hear from you. Uh, for, for one thing, it encourages me to know that you're praying with me. Uh, don't, don't you like it when people are praying with you? And so it encourages me to hear you and for you to say, yeah, pastor, I'm praying for the same thing. I, I want our church, I want my family, I, I want personally to, to experience God's presence and not just his blessing. And so it encourages me, but I also believe it firms up your commitment. That, that when you say, hey, I'm going to do this, it makes it more important. It makes it something you put on your calendar. And, and so 
fill out one of the cards and, and drop it in the uh, giving box in the back of the sanctuary. Send me a text or an email. Come, come by my office and say, hey, pastor, I'm, I'm with you and I'm praying for the same thing. And like I said, there's been several that have already indicated uh, that, that they're joining me in this time of prayer. And today we're going to fly through the rest of the Old Testament. Yes, that's right. We're going to finish the next few books, the next uh, 34 books in one sermon. Of course, you could preach several series and you could preach for a lifetime out of the Old Testament, but that's not the purpose of this series. But we're going to talk about two events that, that I believe serve as, as brackets to the Old Testament. And these events are wilderness and exile. When we left off, God is leading the people uh, they've come to the edge of the promised land. They're almost to Israel. They're almost to Palestine. They're right at the verge of the land. And Moses sends 12 spies. And 10 spies come back and they say, the land is great. Oh, it's everything that God described, everything we could imagine but it's too much for us to conquer. And two, two of the spies said, yes, the land is great, and God is going to give it to us. We know that's Joshua and Caleb. And yet the people didn't go. They took the advice of the ten, and in essence they said, God's plan is awesome, but his plan's too big for us. Imagine, if you will, and I, I, I tried to think of a famous artist, Rembrandt, okay? Rembrandt was an artist, right? Okay, Rembrandt, let's, let's imagine first that he's still alive. And Rembrandt comes to you and says, hey, we're going to paint a masterpiece together. And I'm going to guide your hand, and, and, and we're going to paint this masterpiece. And it's, it's going to inspire humankind for generations. And you say, well, e even with your hand guiding my hand, I don't think I can do it. And you refuse to paint this masterpiece with Rembrandt. That's what the people of Israel do. God says, listen, I'm going to guide you. I'm going to lead you. I'm going to tell you everything to do. I'll be with you. I, I will be the one who gives you the victory. And they say, we can't do it even with you doing it, God. And so for 40 years, God has them wander in the wilderness until this generation uh, that lacked faith is gone. And, and there's no question, they, they lack faith. They, they don't trust God. But in this 40-year period, God stays with them. And they still experience His grace. He feeds them manna. He gives them water out of a rock. He makes it so their clothes does not, do not deteriorate. And all those with teenage kids say, oh, that would be awesome. You know, God's with them every step of the way. In fact, at times... Scripture almost makes this wilderness experience a special time. 
After 40 years in the wilderness, Moses says this, be careful to obey all the commandments I've given you today. Then you will live and multiply and you will enter and occupy the Lord, the land the Lord, God, Lord swore to give your ancestors. Remember how the Lord your God led you through the wilderness for these 40 years, humbling you and testing you to prove your character and to find out whether or not you would obey his commandments. Yes, he humbled you by letting you go hungry and then feeding you with manna, a food previously unknown to you and your ancestors. He did it to teach you that people do not live by bread alone. Rather, we live by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. For all these 40 years, your clothes didn't wear out and your feet didn't blister or swell. Think about it. Just as a parent disciplines a child, the Lord your God disciplines you for your own good. You see it? In the wilderness, God is operating their experience and His presence as God the Father. And He's caring for them this special time in the wilderness. Psalm 136, 16 says, Give thanks to Him who led His people through the wilderness. His faithful love endures forever. The psalmist has seen this wilderness experience not as something completely negative but a time when they really fully experience God. In the wilderness, they not only experience God's discipline, but also God's love. So then they, they, they come once again to the Jordan River, and, and, and Moses is not allowed to enter into the, to the promised land. With them, Moses has to remain behind, and, and Joshua becomes the leader, and, and they cross the Jordan River. They, they have this great experience at Jericho, where, where they just march around the walls of Jericho, and eventually the walls of Jericho fall flat. And they take this city. There's these great victories with Joshua as he begins to, to lead them as they possess the promised land. In Joshua's last plea to him, he says, okay, choose who you're going to serve. You need to choose, are you going to serve the Lord or are you going to serve all the gods all around you? <laughs> You've got to choose somebody. It reminds me of that great Christian singer, Bob Dylan, right? <laughs> you know, Bob Dylan, in the three years he was Christian, wrote, you, you got to serve somebody. And they had to serve somebody. And, and the people all say, oh, yes, we're going to serve God. And Joshua, that preacher of encouragement, said, no, you won't. <laughs> you're not going to do it. You're going you're to follow all these other gods. You're going to do all these other things. But, but you're not going to do what you say you're going to do. And unfortunately, Joshua's right. They begin to intermarry. And the intermarriage leads to them worshiping other idols. And, and, and God will send an adversary. And they would call out to God. And God would send a judge. And the judge would deliver them from the adversary. And we have a whole book in the Bible about these judges called. You guys are really with it today. And so you have the story of Samson and Japheth and, and Gideon and Deborah and, and all these judges would come and deliver the people. And, and the last judge is Samuel. And, and Samuel serves as a judge and in a lot of ways Samuel serves as a prophet and, and Samuel delivers the people and then he sets up his sons as judges. And Samuel's sons are corrupt. Corrupt. 
They're, they're taking bribes. And the people are just tired of this cycle, and they say, give us a king. We want a king. You know, God, God always knew this day was coming. As a matter of fact, in, in the law, in, in Deuteronomy, he provided rules for kings. He says, you're about to enter the land the Lord your God has given you. When you take it over and settle there, you may think we should select a king to rule over us like the other nations around us. If this happens, be sure to select as king the man the Lord your God chooses. You must appoint a fellow Israelite. He may not be a foreigner. The king must not build up a large stable of horses for himself or send his people to Egypt to buy horses. For the Lord has told you, you must never return to Egypt. The king must not take many wives for himself because they will turn his heart away from the Lord. And he must not accumulate large amounts of wealth and silver and gold for himself. When he sits on the throne as a king, he must copy for himself this body of instruction on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priest. He must always keep that copy with him and read it daily as long as he lives. That way he will learn to fear the Lord his God by obeying all the terms of these instructions and decrees. This regular reading will prevent him from becoming proud and acting as if he is above his fellow citizens. It will also prevent him from turning away from these commandments in the smallest way, and it will ensure that he and his descendants will reign for many generations in Israel. So, so God knew that there was coming a day when the people of Israel would say, Give us a king, like, like the nations around us. Give us a king and, and, and make it so we don't have to rely upon these judges. But even so, God through Samuel tries to dissuade them. He says, do as they ask. But solemnly warn them about the way a king will reign over them. So Samuel passed on the Lord's warning to the people who were asking him for a king. This is how a king will reign over you, Samuel said. The king will draft your sons and assign them to his chariots and his charioteers, making them run before his chariots. Some will, some will be generals and captains in his armies. Some will be forced to plow in his fields and harvest his crops. And some will make his weapons and chariot equipment. The king will take your daughters from you and force them to cook and bake and make perfumes for him. He will take away the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his own officials. He will take a tenth of your grain and your grave, grape harvest and distribute it among his officers and attendants. He will take your male and your female slaves and demand the finest of your cattle and donkeys for his own use. He will demand a tenth of your flocks and you will be his slaves. When that day comes, you will beg for relief from this king you are demanding, but then the Lord will not help you. But, but even so, even though they were warned, even though Samuel gives them this, these words, they insisted. And so God gave them what they asked for. They asked for a king, and God gave them a king. And the first one was Saul. You know, Saul was, he looked like a king. <laughs> but Saul was a failure. So Saul couldn't wait and, and his pride caught up with him. And, and eventually Saul was removed as king. And then we have David. D David's not perfect. David makes mistakes, but for the most part, David is pleasing to God. 
And I believe David is pleasing to God because I believe David remains humble even as king. See, the kings could please, but the next king, Solomon, shows us the temptations. Solomon had many wives. And when you think about many wives, it's, it's, it's not just this physical gratification that Solomon's looking for, but these many wives represent allegiances. In other words, they're commitments and commitments from others. That, 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 that Solomon in his many marriages is looking for outside support other than just from God. And so he marries many, many women. He gains great wealth. And he begins to worship other gods. And Solomon begins to make slaves out of other Israelites to build his house and to build a temple. In other words, he becomes Pharaoh. And Israel becomes Egypt. All because they demanded a king. Now Pharaoh or Solomon's reign is marked by three things. There's great wealth. There's a lot of money. But not for all. That there's the elite, and then there's people on the margins that may be oppressed and don't have quite as much. And when I'm listing these things, maybe think if that sounds a little bit like today or not. <laughs> you know, there's wealth, but then there's people who are not making it. And there's oppression, and there's a, the margins are full of people that are being forgotten. There's oppression. That those people that we talked about on the margins, their cries are being ignored. But by the people in power, they really have no interest in helping those who are crying out from the margins. Should I say it, Bob? Probably shouldn't. I'm going to say it anyhow. You got, you got, like, I got to tell you, in our political process, there's a lot of people that talk about people on the margins that really don't care about people on the margins. It's political points. And that's on both sides of the aisle, Republican and Democrat. Church people, God's people have to be different. We're not about words, we're about actions. And those cries of those on the margin mean something to us. And it's just not points we make on Facebook, but it, it, it changes our behavior and how we give our money and how we spend our time. It's marked by stale religion. See, see to, to the people of Solomon's day, God had no other business than to maintain their standard of living. That, that all, all that religion was about was making them feel better about themselves, that they would have better situations, and, and, and they would silence the prophets who said otherwise. When, when prophets would say and demand more, they would say, we don't want to hear that. It was all about their own way. It was all about their strength. It was all about their plans. It was all about 
their desires. And it led to these self-absorbed lives. I believe that you see, see this dire picture by the end of the third king. By the time you get to Solomon, there's cycles where kings will rise up and for a while do better. There's kings that, that seem to get it for the most part, though. Even at its best, there's great wealth, there's oppression, and there's stale religion throughout the, almost the entirety of the kingdom period. At the end of this self-absorbed, Solomon writes, everything is vanity. <laughs> you know, when Solomon writes those words, I don't believe that's God's intention for people, but I believe Solomon is expressing what's going on in his life and what he's seen at the end of all of his wealth and all of his power and everything else that's going on because it doesn't include God. It's empty. Living our own way for only ourselves leads to empty lives. Our culture is full of people living empty lives. And they're always looking for the next experience, the next possession, the, the next thing that will somehow bring meaning and significance to their lives. Okay, can we go back to the Rembrandt illustration? And we talked about Rembrandt you know, in the wilderness that, that Rembrandt said, I'll help you paint the painting. And the people said, even with your help, I can't do it. Imagine a little bit different that, that Rembrandt offers his help again and, and you say, no, let me just have the, I'll, I'll do it. You just watch. God's plan is fine, but mine is better. We are left in exile when we choose to do it our own way. Now, now exile is different than the wilderness. There, there are similarities. But both of these, both the wilderness and the exile are based on a lack of faith, a lack of trust. But the exile period's different. In the exile, eventually we have what's referred to as 400 years of silence. That there's no prophets, that there's no one speaking. God seems to be quiet. Can I tell you, God is the same in the wilderness, the promised land, and in the exile. God, God is the same. Can I get one amen that says God is the same? He's the same, right? See, I don't believe God's silence in exile is connected to his unwillingness to talk. But, but I believe God's silence in the exile is connected to their unwillingness to hear. See, God's desire for us is to be promised, promised land people. That, that, that's just our, God's greatest desire is for, for us as the people of God to, to be possessing, to be in the process of possessing, to be fully in submission to His will. And as He leads, we're following. That's God's desire for you. That's God's desire for me. That's God's desire for us, right? It's for us to be promised land people. But the truth is, at times, 
we find ourselves in wilderness or exile. I, I believe in wilderness, there's this sense of brokenness and humility, and we sense God's presence, but we have this aching desire for more. And we just, in our heart, believe that there's something more for us. In exile, it seems that God is silent. We're not hearing from him. So my question today for you is this. Where are you today? Wilderness? Promised land? Or exile? Where are you? Honestly. Now see, I believe once again, I'm going to ask for a response. And I hope that in your heart you come in. You know, I hope when you come into these worship services, you're ready to sing and you're ready to respond. Matter of fact, if you're not ready to sing, you're not ready to respond, if you're not ready to respond to God in some way, I'm not sure why we're here. It's not because I'm so good looking. And all God's people said, Amen. You didn't come here to look at me and hear me. You came here to hear from God. And if you came here to hear from God, if God speaks, God's voice deserves a response. All of us have these times where we're, where we're fully blown, possessing the land. We have these times of wilderness and exile. Personally, you know, as, as I thought about this, just, just to be vulnerable and open for you, I kind of feel like I'm in wilderness. That's just where I kind of feel like I am. I'm experiencing God. I sense His presence. But, but i got to tell you, I feel like there's something more. That, that God is calling me to more. And it's not that I feel like I've done, been, been disobedient, but I just believe that there's steps of faith that I need to take. And, and, and I, I sense His presence. Anybody with me? But I just feel like there's more. Maybe you're in the promised land. <laughs> And, and, and maybe there's victory after victory and you sense his presence and, it, and, 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 and nothing's coming against you that's slowing you down. You know, you're going through the Jordan River and, and, and your feet aren't even getting wet. You're conquering Jericho and the walls are falling down. You know what the response for that is? Thank you, God, because this isn't about me. It's about you. Maybe you're in exile. You know, you know the most common thing I hear? Bob, I don't know, maybe this was for you too. Dr. Du, maybe it's you as well. The most common thing I hear in my office is, I'm just not hearing from God. I, I hear it all the time. And I always wonder, well, don't you have a Bible? <laughs> But, but I understand what they're saying. They, they're not experiencing that presence, that, that glow, that glory. Is it possible? Is it possible you're in exile because you've chosen your way over God's way? Is it possible that your desires are so loud that you can't hear from God? When we plan this service, and I've been meeting with some people, we've been talking through service plans and, and, and what we're going to do next. And 
as we talked about this service, we, we thought about just doing a service on exile and silence. And, and, and the thought was, let's just have like 10 minutes of just silence. And I thought about that. And as I prepared for this message, what I thought was, some of you have had silence long enough. It's not been 10 minutes. It's been months. It's been years since you've heard from God. And you're so caught up in your own plans that you're not allowing God to work his plans. You want know, to be careful not to manipulate this morning. I, if you know anything about me, I, I don't try to manipulate responses. But I believe God's wanting to move. I believe God is wanting to move in my life, in my family's life. I believe God's wanting to move in your lives, your family's lives. I believe God's wanting to move in our church. I believe God's trying to move in our community. That he's trying to do something new and fresh. And folks, when you see shootings in El Paso and you see shootings in Dayton, Ohio within the last 12 hours where, where 28 people have lost their life, we need God to move, right? Amen. We don't need just a political plan. We need a spiritual revival. And I believe God's trying to move in our church. Every revival, every revival begins with people who say yes. Right? That's the beginning of every revival. God will never force us into revival, but God will bring us revival when we're willing to say yes to him. So before we open the altars, and when I say open the altars, you know, we're not going to open something up. You know, the altars are always available. But before we give you space to come and pray at the altars. What I want you to do is close your eyes, just for a moment. And I'm going to ask you to ask a question. I want you to imagine that God is sitting right next to you. I want you to ask him, God, are you speaking? <laughs> okay, say that out loud with me. God, are you speaking? Some of the most special times I've had in my life is when someone has walked with me to an altar and prayed with me. Maybe in these moments as God sits beside you and speaks, he'd like just to walk down with you and spend some time in prayer. So we're going to give you just a few minutes of space. The altars are available. If you'd like to come, and then Pastor Bob's going to come and close us in prayer.